Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield College in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. All right, my name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Jessica Mosaico at AFE Winery in Newburgh. Uh, it's February 25th, 2020. Thanks so much for joining us today, Jessica. Thank you for being here. Uh, first question, most important question, mm-hmm. uh, why wine? My pathway into wine was entirely out of family loyalty. Um, I absolutely never had on my ra- radar to be involved in wine professionally. Um, my background was in science. I always wanted to um, pursue science as a career um, and ended up in biotechnology. I was in biotechnology for about 10 to 12 years when my dad said to me, um, so I had been science major undergrad, had worked in biotechnology, um, went back to graduate school for my uh, business degree, and then went on in biotechnology. And um, my dad called me one day and said that he had been making wine for 20 years as a hobby. Um, I always helped him in the garage. And he said, you know, some people have said that I should really do this professionally and I'm really thinking about it. And I said, that's a great idea. You should totally do that. And he said, you know, I could use a partner. First of all, I wouldn't really want to manage the business side of things. So I'd need somebody that was strong on the business side. Ideally, somebody that's younger than me because they'd probably take over the winemaking at some point. And, you know, I'd really like to do it with you. (laughs) So we both plunked down $10,000 each and started a fee, and that's how we started. So my path into wine was uh, because my dad was so passionate about it. He was getting so good at it, and I wanted him to continue and to pursue this as a professional endeavor, and I didn't think he'd do it if I didn't do it with him. Tell me about his passion then. Uh, you've been making it garage for a long time. Yeah. Do you have an idea why where the passion bit him? Yeah. And how? So he, first of all, his context, he grew up in the South Bronx as the uh, Jewish son of two immigrants. His mother was the sole survivor in her family of concentration camps from Hungary. Um, his father was originally from Lithuania by way of Mexico City because they couldn't get into the United States at that time. So he grew up in um, the South Bronx in not at all a wine-loving household. I mean, if you've ever had Morgan David, you would understand why wine would not be on your, on your to-do list. And um, it wasn't until much later that he, um, you know, he grew up working at Yankee Stadium. He was a hot dog vendor and worked his way through high school and college and went into the Peace Corps, and he went for training for the Peace Corps to Hawaii. While he was in Hawaii, he met a professor at the University of Hawaii and my mother, and said, forget this Peace Corps, I'm staying here in Hawaii. And he pursued a graduate degree, and um, when he graduated, he needed to find a job in computer science. And 
you know, California, Oregon, Seattle, those were sort of the three places where he might land. Um, my mom and dad looked at a map and thought, that Oregon seems great. Uh, so they came here when he got a job first with Tektronix. And so he, that, that software engineering job is what brought us to Oregon. We lived in Wilsonville. We had a neighbor who uh, one day said, hey, you know, I have some sticks that need to go in the ground. And it's, you could like grow a little vineyard with it. So here, just take these. These are just extra. And so he planted a little vineyard. And uh, three years later, when it was time to do something, they are now growing. Mm -hmm. He said, by the way, now that they're growing grapes, what do I, how do I make wine? And the guy said, don't worry about it. That's really easy. It's no problem. Do you have a piece of paper? <laughs> and my dad had happened to have an envelope, you know, like he'd gotten the mail. And he said, sure. So he literally took the back of the envelope. And the guy said, there's really only four steps to winemaking. It's super easy. And so he wrote down the four steps. And that was his entree into starting to make it himself. Needless to say, after that, he um, started taking classes, started win winning some amateur winemaking competitions, and had some mentors in uh, the area that he enjoyed their wine and started asking them a lot of questions. Mm -hmm. um, so that's really how he did it. And for 20 years, he uh, planted his own vineyard. He also worked with uh, he would volunteer with, at some local wineries, and in return for volunteering his time, he'd get access to buying some of their uh, grapes. So he worked with a lot of wonderful um, vineyards very early on, and after 20 years was when they said, this is now getting ridiculous. You need to go do this on your own. <laughs> so before we get to that part of the story, yeah. I'm curious, you mentioned working in biotechnology, yeah. and I just want to ask a bit more about what you were working with and, yeah. and uh, sort of what your passion was before wine. Yeah. So um, my background, um, well, first of all, I was always interested in science. And early on, I realized that uh, as much as I was having a lot of fun in the dark in the lab with mice, I really needed to be around people. And so I became interested in my senior year in college in biotechnology and pharmaceuticals, essentially drug development for the purpose of testing hypotheses of certain disease models. Um, but I didn't really know what that meant. Mm -hmm. And so I went into um, consulting for pharmaceutical and biotech clients and was really fortunate, got to work on a lot of cool things really early on. Um, consulting is an up or out model, so you either go on to business school or, you know, mm -hmm. that's, that's kind of the, the only path. Mm -hmm. So went to business school and knew that I wanted to um, pursue sales and marketing or business unit leadership, in other words, for biotechnology. I worked primarily immunology, a little bit of oncology, um, and launched a few drugs, and it was a fantastic, fantastic experience. Did you have, before your, the, your dad called, did you have future ambitions in the same realm? Yeah, my, I mean, all of my ambitions were around biotechnology. Like, I wanted to continue to, you know, I led a franchise or a drug um, unit, and I wanted to continue to grow in that. Um, and my passion was really about bringing new therapies to market that could help patients. So tell me about the, the phone call from your dad. Uh, what was your initial reaction? My first reaction was, you should totally do that. You need to go do that. And when I realized that, oh, he really wants me to do this with him, 
I thought, sure, that sounds fun. Naively, I thought, how hard could it be? That sounds great. Yeah, sure, we'll start small. And we did. We started, um, you know, the, we started in 2003, and uh, we started with probably under 400 cases that first year. Uh, doubled that the next year. Doubled that the next year. So it really was a few years where it was a quite a manageable scale. I at that point was still living in San Francisco. It wasn't until 2008 that I left biotechnology and moved up here. Um, and the impetus for that was that, so I used to, my dad and I used to write our tasting notes that my dad would write kind of one line, very succinct, long finish, cherries, nice texture. And I, you know, by the time I went to release tasting notes, these wines had all taken on a certain personality to me. So it wasn't uncommon that I would compare it to a, you know, a celebrity or a brand. And one year I had said, this year's Willamette Valley is the Cameron Diaz of the lineup. It's pretty, light, accessible. Um, and Cameron Diaz's mother, read it and she ordered a case. But I was off launching a drug and so I didn't send it to her for like a month. And then I had this epiphany that I thought, wait a second, wait a second. I haven't sent Cameron Diaz's mother's wine to her yet. We just had a feature article written about us in Wine Spectator. All of these opportunities are gonna continue to pass us by if we don't take it seriously and step up. So I called my financial planner and I said, I am going to quit my job uh, in about 25 minutes. You have, you have 24 minutes to convince me if that's a really stupid decision. And he said, if this is what you're gonna do, this is what you're gonna do, we'll, we'll figure it out. And so I went into my um, boss's office. We were working on, I had just been, or we were announcing that I was promoted and so we were reorging the whole team. And I started the meeting by saying, there's just one small detail about this plan that I need to, to tell you, I, I, I'm not staying. Mm -hmm. And um, I never looked back. So I moved to Oregon in 2008. And that was really the time point that my dad and I started working really hand in hand mm -hmm. on the winemaking side of things. So up until that point, he had handled the winemaking and I had handled the marketing and sales side. Mm -hmm. And at that point from 2008 on, we started working on the wines together. And the name Afi, why, why, yeah. why that decision? Yeah, so it means and daughter. Mm -hmm. and. Um, when he was making wine as an amateur just for fun, he, um, the first year that I helped, we jokingly called it a fee because it was and daughter. I'm an only child. Um, and you know how a lot of Burgundian producers will be whatever their last name is, Effie, so and sons. And so we just jokingly called it and daughter and it stuck. Um, so that's how we named it. <clears throat> So tell me about the difference then for you from being away and working, mm -hmm. working kind of on part of the job, but kind of in your own mm -hmm. little silo, to being here and working hand in hand. Totally different. Um, so, yeah, I mean, before 2008, I would come up for harvest, but that's very different. I'd come up for a long weekend, go back. Um, it became very different. And one of the things that was just... So first of all, I had no background in winemaking before that. I learned entirely by doing everything that I learned about winemaking was from my dad. Um, 
and he was self-taught too. So he had a background as a software engineer and he just became interested in wine and um, learned by doing. Um, and I learned by doing. So that's certainly the path that both of us took. It, we did not have um, an academic background for it. We did not intern at a bunch of different places. We had skin in the game. Any mistake we made was a mistake that was going to cost us our own money. <laughs> and um, so we just learned by doing. And tell me about that process. I'm curious, coming, you obviously had a, had a science background, yeah. so it wasn't foreign to you, yeah. but tell me about the process of actually being in the, being in the vineyard, being in the winery, seeing it uh, happening for the first time. Yeah, I mean, I think that one of the, um, there are certain things about my background that I think gave me a good platform and certain things that are, were just night and day different. So the things that I think um, poised me well is, you know, we have only one shot a year mm -hmm. to make a product that we want to try to optimize. Mm -hmm. So you have to pay attention. Mm -hmm. You have to pay very close attention to the details, to the differences. You have to write things down. You have to document things so that your memory um, is a little aided and if you come into other um, vintages that you can say wait we dealt with something like this one time hold on wait when was it what was the situation what did we do did we like the result did we not like the result and what does that mean for this vintage so that's one is just paying attention and I think any basis in the scientific method gives you the ability to just sort of um, be pretty linear about the process and um, to just pay attention. Mm -hmm. That's certainly one. Um, the other is I certainly felt, feel very comfortable of being in a lab and um, being around um, trials and setting up trials. Um, as kind of a business person, I feel very comfortable being analytical about our business because this is something that's personal and is subjective, but yet you still have to be very analytical about the framework and um, analytical. Uh, you can't go all on gut, I like it, therefore we should, whatever it is. Um, so those are three things that I think helped me well. Ways in which I was totally unprepared is just the basics of it's not about making the right decision it's about process and protocol and sanitization and just not letting any detail go on um, you know you can't be you can't be glib about any sort of detail and it took me a long time to realize oh wait yeah I may have screwed that addition up I wasn't really paying as close of attention as I should have mm -hmm. or did I really clean that well? Because something's going on here. Was I really? What were my? What was my protocol for that? Um, so that I learned a lot by doing things the wrong way. <laughs> and um, the other part that was very difficult for me to wrap my head around is I came from a business where it was all about profit margin, <laughs> and I came into a business that is a cash flow business and is a retail business, <laughs> and it's about inventory turns and it's about things that. Um, just took me a long time to get used to mm -hmm. is that success in business in a small family-owned winery 
um, is not necessarily the same success that I was used to. Um, so it took me a long time to get used to that, and I'm still getting used to it. <laughs> Tell me about the, the if, if you can remember, like the first time you made wine, or the first time you were in the in the yeah. cellar working with your dad. Yeah. Uh, what did you think about the process? What 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 intrigued you? What were you not prepared for? Uh, so the part that intrigued me definitely was uh, being able to set up trials and being able to say there's no right answer we did not have you know we started in 2003 so I moved up here in 2008 so you know we only had eight years under our belt there was no saying oh no we, we never do it that way mm -hmm, mm -hmm. any idea was fair game so hey have we ever tried it this way have we ever tried whole cluster in this particular vineyard have we ever tried spontaneous fermentation in this particular vineyard well, let's try it and then let's just make sure we always have a control so that we can be making educated decisions as we go. Mm -hmm. I loved setting up trials and I still do. Um, so that's the part that I love the most. The other part is blending trials. I absolutely, my dad and I used to do blending trials entirely and exclusively together. And we would start out with a very strategic framework of, um, okay, what is in our cellar? What's the input? Mm -hmm. What is our desired output? What is it that we think that we could, what is sellable mm -hmm. of certain tiers? And that would at least give us some rough framework. Mm -hmm. And then we would talk about each individual vineyard mm -hmm. or cuvee that we were making and talk about historically what have been the strengths and weaknesses, what would we like to try to achieve? So we had a strategic discussion first so you have your hypotheses and then you start tasting and sometimes what, when you start tasting that all goes out the window, um, but sometimes you, you know what you can stay anchored towards. Um, so I loved that part of the process. Um, the most, so the first wine that I made by myself, so I came up here in 2008. Um, 2008 was obviously a lovely vintage to jump in full time. Um, 2009, I made my first wine by myself. I made our rosé and we called it Fifi <laughs> because I'm, and daughter, I'm the daughter, and it was my baby, so I called it Fifi. <laughs> um, not commercially, but just we joke, we jokingly called, where's Fifi? Bring Fifi in out of the, you know, no, take Fifi outside. <laughs> cool down Fifi. Um, so that was my first um, time where I felt like, I had decisions that were all mine to, to mess up. Mm -hmm. And I loved that piece of accountability. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I assume uh, your dad had developed a kind of a winemaking philosophy yeah. over the years, and I assume that some of that came to you. I'm, so I'm curious, how would you describe your winemaking philosophy now, and how does it maybe differ from, from his philosophy? Yeah, so first of all, I think that um, my philosophy is probably very similar because it's all I've known. I, mm -hmm. Like I said, I didn't intern in various mm -hmm. different countries. I didn't have um, a strong academic platform for it. It's all I've known. Mm -hmm. I've known it now for 17 years, and I have a pretty good memory, and I take good notes. So it's a matter of uh, being able to reference similar vintages mm -hmm. or similar situations mm -hmm. and talk to people. Um, but I would say that our, our philosophy has remained pretty stable over time. So I never know how to describe our winemaking style when I'm, when I'm uh, asked. But I can tell you what 
I believe in, mm -hmm. and I believe that um, wine should have authenticity, transparency, um, integrity. I believe that wine should honor time and place, and in so doing, it can really capture that moment mm -hmm. and yet change over time. Mm -hmm. So how, uh, as you were kind of learning the process, how do you go about creating a wine that matches those, those, those are very noble goals. How do you create a wine yeah. that matches those? Um, so first of all, we have a very small estate vineyard and then we manage blocks at six other sites, which essentially means those are not owned properties, but those are blocks that we have been with in all cases except for one for greater than 11 years. Um, so these are blocks that we know that we um, know the potential of that site. We know what we're trying to achieve. Um, and so I think it's really a matter of being true to that mm -hmm. and of being true to what you believe are the strengths and weaknesses of that particular block and site. Tell me about um, growing, you mentioned starting very small yeah. and growing kind of incrementally. Yeah. Uh, did that change once you were here full time? Did yeah. you take on a different, so tell me about yeah. growing the business and maybe what yeah. your goals were. Yeah, so first of all, let me start with context. We, um, when we started the business, we started this out of love. Our idea was we want to do what we love with whom we love. We want this to be a family business and as a result of that, that dictated a lot of choices that we made along at the beginning and along the way. Um, that meant that because we were doing it together and out of the joy of doing it, um, we kept things at a manageable scale. We were always entirely self-funded. So like I mentioned, we started the business by both plunking down a $10,000 check and just calling it Let's just start and see what we can do for a little while. Mm -hmm. And then we had to sell in order to, you know, free up, um, have cash for the next vintage. So all along the way, we were always self-funded. Um, that definitely controlled the rate of growth. Mm -hmm. um, also, it's not as though we built a big winery and then had to fill the fill fill it. Mm -hmm. um, we always have been involved in other facilities so uh, when we first started we were at Medici for the first year and then August Sellers opened. We moved to August Sellers and we were there for 13 years um, and what was great about that is it allowed us to grow at a very scalable pace mm -hmm. because we started out with this tiniest barrel room and grew to the largest barrel room. Um, but it really, we had flexibility. It's not that we built a facility and needed to pay it off, you know? Um, so that was a major portion of it. I then moved to the winery in 2017 to Holleran Wines. Um, which I'd love to come back to that, how we moved there. But that's also a place that is owned by Bill Holleran, and he had some extra capacity, and so I moved in there. So I think that the fact that we started this as a love and as a family thing mm -hmm. dictated many of the choices that we made and also the rate of growth. Mm -hmm. 
So let's, let's talk about that, that move, yeah. the hollering. Uh, yeah. why, why there and why then? Yeah. So what had happened is my dad died very unexpectedly in 2017. So uh, my dad was 70 years old, but I would say 70 years young. And he, um, he went outside to work on our tractor in the vineyard at home. Mm -hmm and had an accident and died unexpectedly on April 13th, 2017. Um, there was no way that in a thousand years we could have seen any of that coming. Um, I certainly felt like in that one moment that I lost my best friend, my business partner, and my dad. And for a long time after that, I, my only goal was to keep the business going just exactly the same as my dad and I had started. Mm -hmm. I didn't know anything different. So much had been, you know, my foundation had been ripped out from under me mm -hmm. um, that I didn't, I just wanted to keep things going kind of as stably as I possibly could have. Um, and a few months after my dad died, Bill Holleran, who owns La Pavillon Vineyard, with whom with, we, we work with La Pavillon, said to me, uh, hey, if you could use a change of pace, I just built this new facility on Warden Hill Road. I have extra capacity, so if you need a change of pace, let me know. And I said, thanks so much, but I cannot handle any more change. Wait a second, what did you say? And he said, I have no idea. I don't know how it would work. I just know I have extra capacity. So if that's helpful to you. <laughs> and so I moved there a few months later. And um, that ended up being a fantastic, fresh, clean start for me in a welcoming place um, with a tremendously supportive group of people. Mm -hmm. So did it feel like, did it feel like, you mentioned a fresh, clean start. Yeah. Did it feel like, it helped you move on to the next step of what had yeah. to happen? Yeah, I think that if I would have stayed in at August Sellers in the same building that my dad and I had always been together, only the only thing that would be different would be that he isn't there. Mm -hmm. I don't know that I would have been able to quote unquote move on, whatever that means. Mm -hmm. um, I think that I always would have felt incredibly alone and sad um, and I think being in a new place gave me an opportunity to think about to have new memories and to create them and create new protocols and create new a new process and with new people that um, surrounded me and there was not an anchor to my dad and I used to do this sitting right there um, so I think that that was a really important component for me did you have any doubts in the aftermath of his of losing him so suddenly? Did you ever think about not going on with Afi? No, uh, I would say um, so. Maybe in the first twenty-four hours. So, I'll, I'll, specifically, what happened is that um, after he died, the next day we went to a viewing, mm -hmm. and Bill Hatcher, who is a founder of. Rec a to Z and owner of A to Z and um, Rex Hill was a really good friend of my dad's and has always been a very close family friend. He drove me to the viewing and after the viewing we were in the car alone and I said at some point we're gonna have to talk about what am I what am I supposed to do mm -hmm. 
And um, he said to me something that, you know, we, we talk in, in the Valley about that we're a very collaborative mm -hmm. spirit, but here's what the collaboration really means. Mm -hmm. He said to me, no matter what you decide to do with the business, you will never be alone. I will never be your father, no one will ever be your father, but you will never have to make a hard decision and feel like you have no one to talk to. Mm -hmm. And then he kept showing up and he meant it. And he would come over to my house once a week and say, all right, what's going on? What bills need to be paid? What's going on? What, do you, what decisions do you need to make this week? Um, so that's an aside about collaboration. But in that moment, I, I, I definitely felt like, how am I going to do it? But it was, how am I going to do it? It was never if I was going to do it. I felt that moving on without my dad was going to be difficult. But not moving on with the winery would be impossible. So for me, I felt that I had an honor and a responsibility to move things forward. And at that time, I only defined success as, let me just do it the same way we did it before. What I didn't realize is that slowly over time, I would be able to grow the business a little bit more. Um, you know, we've grown AFI, uh, we've grown revenues 50% in two years. Um, it's changed a lot. We have invigorated a lot of new energy into the brand. We are in what I call AFI 2.0, <laughs> um, and it's really exciting. And I do feel that it, for me, I have a very clear sense of purpose of building this to an even greater potential than what my dad and I had built it to, mm -hmm. and to building it even more. Mm -hmm. and, and the important part of that is that we stay very rooted in our legacy, um, and that we branch out. And on the subject of legacy, uh, tell me a little bit about your Gabriella wine. Yeah, so um, the first year that um, we started the Gabriella was in 2015. So my daughter, Gabriella, was born in 2015. She is my miracle child. I was pretty old when I had her, and I had already been diagnosed with unexplained infertility and told that I could never have children and failed lots of years of fertility treatment. And um, I got pregnant with her at age 42. And she came two months early. So when she was born, she and I lived in the um, NICU together for a month. And my dad came to visit in the NICU and said, hey, what do you think of adopting the French tradition of uh, creating a wine to enjoy on a child's 21st birthday? And I was still in the hospital at that point. And I said, yeah, sure. Here, write down all the things you would do to make a wine that's meant to age. And I'll do the same thing. So we wrote it down, and we switched lists. And it was the exact same. So he, I stayed in the NICU, and he um, went and made the wine. And he made a small lot of Gabriella Cuvée that was meant for our family and friends to enjoy and with enough for our club members. And that was it. Really small lot. And we thought it would just be a one-time thing. Right after he died, I started blending trials about a month after his death. And there were three lots that stood out to me in the cellar. Of, they were beautiful, but they needed a lot of time to age. 
And so at that point, I made the decision that the Gabriella would not be one point in time, a single vintage, but each vintage, it would really meet, it was meant to be our grand crew. How could we put our best foot forward? Mm -hmm. um, and so that's what it is. It's, um, has historically been two or three vineyards that are combined for wine that we feel is meant to age. Mm -hmm. I also give a portion of proceeds back from all sales of Gabriella back to the NICU where Gabriella and I stayed. Why is that important to you to do that? I feel like, you know, if Gabriella had been, there's, you know, if Gabriella had been born 30 years before she was, she would not be with us today. We had amazing medical care, and I feel that it's so important to give back and to make sure that other people who find themselves in an extremely vulnerable position of needing um, life critical services, mm -hmm. that they receive that and that they have support. So you've talked a lot about legacy today, about the legacy of your father yeah. and now the legacy of your daughter. Tell me about what you're kind of envisioning the legacy of AFI to be as, as you look ahead, as a, especially AFI 2.0. Yeah. What do you want the legacy to be? Yeah. So, I mean, I think that um, when my dad and I started this winery, it was really about what we shared and wanting to bring that to other people. Mm -hmm. So my mom does not drink. She just never has, not interested. And so my dad and I always bonded over having a bottle of wine at dinner and the conversations and talking about the wine and um, that was a critical component for us in our relationship. And we wanted to bring that to other people. We're, you know, our story is about family. It's about, um, that's how we started. It's why we continue and it's what we hope accompanies our wines when people take them home. Mm -hmm of sharing our wines with whomever they define as family. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so that's really what I want our legacy to be, is that I would like for our wine to be enjoyed with family, to, if it just helps appreciate your time together a little bit more with whomever you define as your family, that's really our goal. So I noticed on the, on the wall over here you have your vineyards yeah. listed list over there. Yeah. So uh, I know working with a lot of vineyards is something that's important to you yeah. and, and how you make wine. So, so tell me about, you, you talk about long-term relationships yep. with vineyards. Tell me about how you went about choosing vineyards you wanted to work with and maybe what you were looking for yeah. uh, among yeah. those. So first of all, um, the first component of answering that question is that we've always looked at it as an overall portfolio. We believe that we have this blessing of being here in the valley where we have this lovely diversity of soils right here mm -hmm. um, and uh, viticultural areas that we think truly make for different textures um, and different um, components of the wine. So we first looked at it from an overall portfolio perspective, which is we want to have some Yamhill Carlton, some Dundee Hills, some Eola Amity. So that's the first component. The second component is that I have to give my dad entire credit for being able to see potential of sites. So he came on really early, I mean, he, I mean with some of the sites. So some were kind of legacy sites. Um, we, when we started our first year, we started with Seven Springs Vineyard and Palmer Creek Vineyard. Clearly he was very aware of Seven Springs Vineyard. And I think the reason why we got to work with that 
vineyard was because my dad just kept calling and kept calling and kept calling every single week. And finally they said, if we just give you some of this, will you stop calling us all the time? Mm -hmm. And um, so part of that was persistence. Sites like uh, Marsh Vineyard, it's a similar thing where we knew we wanted to work with that site and it was just a matter of being uh, relentless, I suppose. Mm -hmm. uh, but then there were other sites that were new and emerging that we got on really early with. And I, again, I just have to give my dad credit for seeing potential of what those sites, how they could evolve. Palmer Creek Vineyard, we were um, first year that it was bearing fruit. Um, Kalita Vineyard, second year. Um, Fairsing Vineyard, first year. So there are sites that we just started with when it was, they were quite young, and we've grown up together. Do you know what it was he saw when we talk about potential? Do you know what it was he was looking for? Yeah, I mean, um, because you couldn't taste any of the wines, but he was just looking at, well, what else is nearby with a similar aspect or orientation, and what what is the best case scenario of how this could evolve and he just spent a lot of time listening to the vineyard owners of what their vision was and what they were willing to put into the site. Um, yeah, absolutely. And you, you mentioned uh, kind of, again the long-term relationships and, yeah. and managing the blocks there so tell me about how that's evolved in, in terms of what you want to get out of those grapes and, and how you kind of n navigate that with the vineyard owners themselves. Yeah so I mean I feel extremely blessed because we have fantastic vineyard owners where we are completely aligned in what we're trying to achieve from that site and what they think is possible from that site. Mm -hmm. So I think we're operating from a place of complete alignment and that makes the details a lot easier um, in terms of my maybe day-to-day -day interactions with their vineyard management um, crews. Mm -hmm. And um, so I, I think that upfront there's just that clear alignment. <laughs> So uh, the, the 2019 vintage is going to be quite a bit different yeah. than some of the recent ones have been. Yeah. Tell me about uh, how that one is looking for you so yep. far and maybe what was different about it than the recent ones. Yeah, so I'm really happy with the 2019 wines thus far. Um, in tasting through, I'm really pleased with the flavors, with the textures. Um, I'm really excited about them. Um, most of them are done with ML mm -hmm. at this point, mm -hmm. so I feel like I can start to have a sense of where they're headed. And um, I am delighted to have a little bit more acid than we've had in the last few years. Um, and I'm very excited to have more moderate alcohol levels. Uh, it was about time, so I'm thrilled. <laughs> I'm curious to you on that note. Um feeling confident in the winemaking yeah. itself. At what, what point did that kind of kick in? What point did you feel comfortable making the decisions you um, had to make? Well, first of all, I don't know that I feel totally com confident ever. Um, I feel comfortable, but I don't feel confident. That's probably two different things. I think if I ever felt confident, I'd be a little worried. Um, but I feel totally insecure a lot, you know, and part of that for me is the journey in is that, um, you know, I don't have the academic background. I didn't work on a bunch of other people's winemaking styles before focusing on, on our own. Um, and 
you know, when my my dad died so suddenly, like we always knew that it would transition to me being 100% the winemaker, but we assumed that I'd have a really strong assistant by then or a really strong whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, and we didn't have time to put those types of things in place. Mm -hmm. So um, I definitely don't feel confident, but I think that I have a strong network of people that I trust mm -hmm. and that I respect their palates. Mm -hmm. um, and that I am totally comfortable. I was, this morning, I was doing um, an acid trial with Anna Matzinger because I really trust her palate and adore working with her. Mm -hmm. And for things like that, I call in friends that I love their palates. I'm very clear of what I'm trying to achieve with each of the wines. The how I get there in every single vintage is not at all clear to me. So I talk to people that I, I like what they do, and I just ask questions. So you've talked about the, your very recent recent growth and also yeah. recent changes. So as you look ahead for AFI 2.0, what do you see uh, as you look, say, maybe a decade into the future? Mm -hmm. I would love to expand into, so first of all, I want to stay focused and stay true to the core Pinot that we have been working on. There's nothing that I really want to change in our Pinot program, which is 90% of what we do. Mm -hmm. um, I would like to start to experiment with a few other varietals. Mm -hmm. um, I've grown our rosé program, and I'd love to see what else we could do. Um, so I'd like to continue to focus on our Pinot program, but expand mm -hmm. a bit. Mm -hmm. Anything in particular you want to do? You want do you want to share? You want to try with, or still a secret at this point? Uh, I'm still. I haven't made a complete decision yet. I haven't put the money down <laughs> to make the decision yet. Fair enough. <laughs> These fair are enough. decisions in my mind. <laughs> uh, what about uh, with the organ, the industry in general? Uh, obviously, yeah. you've you've been around it now for nearly 20 years. Yeah. Uh, tell me about what it looked like when you started versus what it looks like now. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, so when I when we started, we were about the 150th winery. Of course, now there are 787 in Oregon and over 600 in the Willamette Valley. So uh, certainly it has changed. And I think that, um, well, so it's changed in a couple different ways. The first is that uh, when I was telling my friends from biotech that I was quitting to go do a winery in Oregon, they kept saying, they have Wine in Oregon? Is that, so that's like north of Napa and Sonoma. Um, so I think that the reputation that we have established and the uh, esteem and regard for Willamette Valley Pinot is in a totally different place than it was when we started. Um, so I love seeing that um, maturation. Secondly, I think that we have started to diversify in terms of, as we have new entrants into the market, um, we've seen a lot of diversification of business models, um, locations, um, varietals, and seeing that expansion, um, that it's not just classic traditional Willamette Valley Pinot Noir is another piece of expansion that's really exciting to see. Um, I think our core opportunity is to how do we build upon the strong, you know, in some ways Willamette Valley Pinot right now 
bucks a lot of trends in terms of growing at a growth rate that is disproportionate to the industry as a whole. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, that's, that's a tremendous opportunity that we have. So how do we continue um, to grow that and sustain that while also recognizing the emerging mm -hmm. new varietals, et cetera, um, that create more diversity mm -hmm. in our region? Um, so I think that that is a core element for us. Um, and then we need to think about the culture piece of it too. I mean, I shared with you two examples of what collaboration means to me. One is Bill Hatcher when my dad died saying, you're never gonna have to make a decision alone. I will be here for whatever you need. And then showing up and being that. And then also Bill Holleran after my dad dying saying, hey, if you need to change a pace, I've got some space at my winery if you wanna move in. And those are two concrete examples of what collaboration means and has meant. As we grow, I would sure love for our culture to still have this um, proof, proof is in the pudding of how you show up for others mm -hmm. and show up for your colleagues and how you lend support. What do you see as you look ahead for the industry? Are there, do you have, again, like I say, a decade out, what do you see as, as it's obviously in the midst of change right now? Yeah. What's it gonna look like in 10 years? I really hope that we, um, I mean, we are, we, I think we have so many opportunities right now to differentiate ourselves, not just for Willamette Valley Pinot Noir, but to really increase that and push that to the next level. We think that we're, that every stage along the way we thought, oh, this is so much better than where we came from, but it could get even better. Um, so I think continuing to um, perpetuate and increase the reputation for Willamette Valley Pinot Noir, while also focusing on sparkling wine, Chardonnay, who knows what else, that really can be flagship best in class. Um, not just we're doing it because we can, but we're doing it, and we're doing it outstandingly well. Mm -hmm. We'll talk about, a little bit about selling wine, because clearly yeah. that's, a, that's something you have a, a background in from, from the very beginning of this endeavor. My biggest challenge. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm curious, because you talked about in the beginning that your friends didn't even know that Oregon yeah. had wine, or basically where Oregon was on the map, and, I, and we've heard that obviously many times. Mm -hmm. um, so at that point, your difficulty is telling people that Oregon is making wine and that it's any good and yeah. then selling it. Now you have kind of the opposite problem, where people know, but now you have a lot of competition. So tell yeah. me about how selling Oregon wine has changed and what it's like selling yeah. Oregon wine now in 2020. Yeah, so okay, first of all, I think that while we think that it's different, it really isn't. And here's what I mean by that. Um, I remember maybe 10 years ago, okay, so there's 787, let's say 10 years ago, I'm making this up, there were 500 brands. Mm -hmm. But we were still at only producing 1% mm -hmm. of uh, total US wine production. Now we're at 1.5%. So really, who cares? <laughs> You're talking 1 500th of 1% versus 1 787th of 1.5%. It's still whatever. It's still the opportunity is really to grow the category. So for me, I actually don't think that it's changed that much. Mm -hmm. I think that the imperative 
that we all benefit from is growing the category, period. Mm -hmm. And I think, um, you know, we've seen a lot of things in the past year about how do we grow with an emphasis and focus on quality. And we've seen lots of different initiatives, whether it was with labeling or other initiatives, of how do we make sure that there's some quality control um, to protect that which we are able to charge a price premium for. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that that's, that's, that's one component. Mm -hmm. I, it, in a way, I don't think it's changed that much. Yeah. How is it for you now, if you go outside of Oregon, selling Oregon wine, what's the reception yeah. like? Well, now I'm just delighted because they actually know, they have some expectation of what they should expect from a Willamette Valley Pinot Noir. They have some expectation that they might expect to pay a little bit more for the Willamette Valley Pinot Noir than the Sonoma um, Pinot Noir that they have on their list. So I really appreciate that, that there is that um, kind of overall appreciation. The vast majority of my business is still direct to consumer. Um, so I do feel a little bit protected from some of the market share concerns. Mm -hmm. um, but it's certainly an issue for all of us. You know, we don't have, uh, we don't have Thanksgiving weekend and Memorial Day weekend in the same way that we used to mm -hmm. 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You, you mentioned the DTC, yeah. which of course is a lot of people, that's what a lot of people are selling yeah. their wine right now. How have you built that base and what, what, how has that come along as, as AFI has grown? Yeah, so I think uh, this is part of what goes back to what I think has separated AFI 2.0 from AFI 1.0. <laughs> so in AFI 1.0, a lot of our values or decisions, they were just sort of, my dad and I knew what we were trying to do and we didn't even need to articulate it. Mm -hmm. We didn't need to communicate it to anybody else. We just, let's say, I'm just going to use a hypothetical, let's say that a new vineyard was available. We wouldn't even really need to go through the whole articulation of the whole thing. We'd be like, ah, no, three Amhill Carlton's already don't need another one, okay. Um, so it was just very quick. We had a shorthand way of communicating. Um, and we were, at that time, we had not opened this tasting room yet. Um, we were open by appointment only in our barrel room. So in order for somebody to actually try our wines, they had to call me on my cell phone, make an appointment with me, and come at a time that worked for me <laughs> to meet me in our barrel room. Mm -hmm. uh, so there were a lot of barriers and hurdles. <laughs> or they would come to our, you know, to a holiday weekend mm -hmm. open house. Um, in AFI 2.0, we have the tasting room open. We're a little bit easier to find. Um, and the other thing that I needed to do in you know, about a year and a half ago, I was having a staff meeting, about four of us, and the four plus me, and I looked around the room and I thought, oh, nobody was here when my dad was here, or only one person was. So I wrote down, I wrote what I call the AFI ethic, which is, here's why we do business. This is what we do, this is what we believe wine should be, this is how we believe we should, kind of our values. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and I wrote a statement of five um, statements of what the AFI ethic would be because I realized that it was very important that if we want to honor our history and stay rooted in our legacy, we needed to write it down and we needed to be 
concrete and transparent about it. That's number one. Number two, um, because we had a tasting room and because it wasn't just my dad or me greeting guests, our customer makeup changed. So, um, you know, we, we say that we have three main customer types. We really only have three customers at AP, and we kind of have a little bit of a portrait of what the needs are and what the demographics are of each of those uh, customers. And in the old days, in AP 1.0, when it was just my dad and I, well, we had people that looked a lot like my dad that were boomers, um, retirees, and we had people that looked a lot like me that were moms and kind of working people, and we didn't have what I consider our third customer type, which is um, double income uh, millennials that are really focused on having a unique experience mm -hmm. that want wine that, that they can share with their families or with their friends that they consider their families. Um, so I think that that third customer segment is because I have an energy level in my tasting room of people that bring in that energy level. So you obviously took a, an interesting route into wine, and a very yeah. unique one. Uh, but if someone were to come to you, and I'm sure this probably has happened, if someone were to yeah. come to you and ask for your advice on getting into the Oregon wine industry, what would you, what were the words of wisdom you would share with them? Um, I would say number one, if you want to do it, do it. Just do it. Start making. Start making. That's the only way you make your own mistakes. It's the only way you're really gonna learn. So really just do it. Number two, um, find those voices that you respect and those palettes that you respect and ask a ton of questions. And number three, be really concrete about why you wanna do it and that will frame the how you can do it. For us, because it was about doing what we loved with whom we love, that framed the choices mm -hmm. that we made. We were never gonna bring in outside investors, we were never gonna take out a lot of debt. That wasn't why we did this. So all the questions that I have for you today, Jessica, is there anything I didn't ask that I should have, anything we didn't cover that we should have covered? I don't think so. Excellent. Well, thank you so much thank for you. sharing your time, for sharing your stories, and, and those of your fathers as well. Uh, and we'll go ahead and let you off the hook here. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield College. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. And a special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.